Hello everyone, I'm Jeremy Simon with 3D Universe and I want to welcome you to episode 10 of our series, 3D Universe Untethered. Uh, in this series, as you may have known from our last season, we get to sit down with uh, folks in the digital fabrication industry, people using 3D printers and laser cutters and uh, vacuum formers and all sorts of cool technology like that and talk about what they're doing and how they've been putting that technology to use. And uh, today we've got a great show for you because we get to sit down with the two founders of a company called Tactile Craftworks, uh, Sarah Heck and Anna Warren, who I'll be introducing momentarily. And uh, they uh, operate a business where they use uh, laser cutters as well as traditional leatherworking techniques to create custom leather products. So uh, we'll get to hear about their business and how they've been able to use this technology to, to get things uh, going and, and get a successful business running. Uh, so uh, I want to invite you, as always, to stay tuned to our blog site at 3duniverse.org. Uh, if you go there and uh, click on the 3D Universe Untethered graphic in the corner, that'll take you to the page where you can always see the upcoming episodes as well as past episodes and their recordings. So uh, that's where you can always find uh, these, these sessions. Uh, with that, I'm going to go ahead and bring the others on screen here and introduce everyone for you. So, uh, as you may know from previous sessions, I have Jen Owen with me from 3D Universe as co-host. Welcome, Jen. Thanks for joining us always. And I'm very pleased to welcome Sarah Heck, who is joining us um, as well. She was born in Arizona, raised in the suburbs of Chicago. An interest in leatherwork began at her childhood summer camp and reignited for a period styles project while she was completing her BFA in theater design and technology at the University of Evansville. After taking a workshop in Coptic bookbinding, she began developing product that combined leather carving and tooling and hand stitching with symmetry. Sarah is working to visit every national park in the U.S., and after living in Milwaukee for 12 years, she has recently moved to San Francisco. Sarah, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having us. I also want to welcome Anna Warren, another founder of uh, Tactile Craftworks, who has traveled far and wide, but has called Milwaukee home for the last 33 years. Her roots are in crafting for the stage. She's made her living making props in Milwaukee and Santa Fe, New Mexico since 2005. When Anna isn't quarantining, her passion is world travel. She also enjoys yoga, beekeeping, and crafting with her friends. She lives with her husband, Mike, in their wonky house with their two dogs and two cats. Looks like Anna just got dis disconnected. Let's get her joint back in here. Okay, let me see. Dealing with some new technology here tonight. So there we go. We've got Anna back. Welcome back. Hello. Thanks for having me. <laughs> no problem. We just went through your introduction. So your timing of reconnecting is perfect. Okay. So wonderful <laughs> to have you to make with us. Excited to hear about the work you've been doing. Um, Jen, maybe you want to get us started here. Yeah, I was wondering if you guys could tell us a little bit about your business and what kind of products you offer. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You want to go ahead? Go ahead. We're a three-woman uh, leather crafting studio that our headquarters is in uh, Milwaukee, um, Wisconsin. And we make, um, we make leather goods, accessories, things like journals and flasks and passport wallets. And kind of what we're known for is laser etching antique maps uh, into the leather and then hand assembling them. Um, after they're finished. So right now we carry uh, over 45 different cities on our website yeah. and um, we sell wholesale to uh, over 200 companies around around the country. Um, and uh, we so it's a really a, it's a combination of the technology and the work that we do by hand. Um, 
And we generally try to work with older maps when possible for a number of reasons. But um, if you go to our website, you can see all of the work that we do. Or if you're watching the video of this, you know, it's things like like this Chicago Journal, um, which is using a map from 1894. And uh, yeah, so we, we kind of love that that type of aesthetic. Excellent. Um, I, I'd love to hear a little bit more of a, the background from each of you. There was a little bit of this in the introductions, but I'd love to hear in your own words just how each of you originally got started in, in leather work. Maybe we could start with you, Sarah. Sure. Um, so my leather work did start, I mean, as I think a lot of us do at summer camp with, you know, stamping a, a leather cuff or a keychain, something like that. And it was something that I loved. And um, I, I would, I remember thinking about it as several times, like throughout my life, I, I did a lot of art um, in junior high and high school. And uh, on in college, I focused on, I thought I was going to be a scenic designer. And then um, and then it turned out that I was a, I basically studied to be a prop person. Um, and so I was always very hands-on. Uh, and, and during that college class, I had this opportunity where they said, my, basically the, the assignment was recreate any type of historic period piece. It could be a stained glass window. It could be, uh, it had to be something kind of architectural or uh, furniture related. And so I thought maybe this is my chance. Like I've always kind of loved the look of leather tool and I've always been curious about it. So I got the basic tools and I asked the salesman who sold me the tools what the basic method was. Um, and then I just kind of went at it. And um, again, I, if you're not seeing this, uh, or if you are seeing this video, so this is the first piece I ever tooled. And it's a, it's a um, it's basically a piece that's based on a Spanish colonial chair back. It's a very traditional type of leather tooling. Um, and if you look at it, it's full of mistakes. Obviously, it was my first time, my first time doing this. Uh, and this one took me about 15 hours. If I were to redo that same pattern again, it would probably take me about an hour and a half now. Um, so that was kind of where it started and I just adored it. Um, so when I met Anna, we were working in a prop shop in Milwaukee and our tables were next to each other and um, we would just fantasize about starting a business together. We knew we worked really well together. Um, it wasn't specifically leather in the first place, it was just you know, we dreamed of all sorts of different things. Um, some of them got like wild and wacky of, you know, what kind of a shop we were going to open. Um, but the, the, I don't know, the leather just stuck. And so basically the, the job that we worked at together at the theater um, was we were laid off every summer. And so Anna would go to the Santa Fe Opera to work in her prop job there. And I would basically make these leather journals and sell them at farmer's markets around Milwaukee. Um, for, my, for extra income during those summer months. So that was kind of how, how my journey took along the leather world and how it's continued. Excellent. How about you, Anna? I really got started in leather when I started working with Sarah specifically. Um, like Sarah, I also had a pretty broad background in crafting. Uh, so theater technology is, it's all the behind the scenes stuff in theater, you know, set design, costume design, props, which is all of the little set dressing and uh, smaller details like that. So when you're in props, you have to kind of get a lot of skills. You know, it's kind of a jack of all trades, master of none situation. Uh, and so I had, you know, probably sewn a little leather bag or something. Oh. Uh oh. <laughs> Looks like Anna's connection just froze. Hopefully she'll back, be back with us shortly and we will get the rest of her answer. It's always, it's always a bit of an unknown with new technology like this. So bear with us, folks. 
Yeah, she's dropped now, but she should be reconnecting. There she is. Welcome back, Anna. Sorry, looks like we have a connection <laughs> issue. I am so sorry. I decided to do this at home because we usually have stronger connection at home. So I am sorry if this is on my end. No, no problem. It's always an unknown. So you were you were just explaining the background and how you got into leatherworking? Yeah, so basically I, I also had a broad uh, uh, base in different types of crafting and different materials. And it wasn't really until I met Sarah and decided that we wanted to be working together that I focused a little bit more on the leather. Awesome. Um, what what products did you start with making by hand when you started working together? Yeah, so at the time, Anna was silk screening things. Like she, that was kind of her hobby, her side hobby. And so the first stuff that we really made collaboratively outside of the prop shop, where we tried, um, we were screen printing on leather, which was actually kind of a cool thing. We were making oh. things that we thought were really beautiful, but we're only selling kind of so-so. Um, and so we were doing some leather work. We, Anna was also doing some embroidery. So we were really trying to kind of combine those two things. Um, and we, you know, again, we had a lot of really broad ideas of like different textiles that we could design and things like that. But it was really seeing the laser cutter for the first time that really kind of solidified products for us. And I don't know if you want to talk about that. Yeah, so uh, we had a really fun night. There is a local innovation museum here in Milwaukee called Discovery World, and they have these great labs that are set up for people to do all sorts of different things. They have a video lab and um, a printmaking lab, and they also have what they call the Make It Lab, which is a, it's kind of a technology lab, a little maker space. And um, so we were there as a group from the theater, kind of trying to do a, you know, cross organizational meet and greet, see how our, you know, the theater we worked with and this museum could work together, use each other's resources. And we basically just got to play with all of their tools. And we were playing with the lasers and we were having a great time. And somebody said, well, you know, I just tried to laser etch on leather the other day. And we were like, what? Yeah. <laughs> and um, we totally nerded out. We just like lost our minds. We just uh, wanted to try everything that we could. And, um, you know, it was, a, we were really at this point where we didn't know how we were going to scale the business up. You know, the hand tooling and hand stitching and all of that, it's, it's a very labor intensive process. And so this, it was this like very pivotal moment where everything clicked to like, wait a second. We could do this and it was um it was very fast all of the ideas came very quickly uh our first idea right off the bat was to do a, a journal with the map of milwaukee on it with a flap cut along the shoreline so that happened that first night and we worked with the museum and that design it lab over the next several months we would come in and teach craft making theater workshops for their students. And they taught us how to use the lasers and helped us prototype our first items. So it was a really, I think, you know, they meant to do like two big organizational uh, crossover projects. And I think Sarah and I totally got the best out of that whole deal. <laughs> like we definitely, yeah. That's awesome. Um, so then was there a period where you guys were in business doing things uh, with more traditional means before you brought in the laser cutters or was that the start of the business when you started using the laser cutters for the leather? Oh, that's a good question. No, we did do some, uh, we did do some craft fairs and smaller projects like that under the name Tactile Craftworks, but before the laser cutters. Um, and it was really kind of a, 
it was basically us selling craft fairs and selling our separate products together. So it was it was like half collaborative and then half kind of our own thing. But the the laser cutter is really kind of what solidified. It was really the missing piece that we were looking for um, to really solidify that that kind of product that met us both halfway. Because that was something we had, we were really we were kind of struggling with. Like so, the business was growing. We were making things, um, and we were growing just our brand. But it was still very very early. So sure, sure. That, like, yeah, the Milwaukee Map Journal was really kind of our flagship product. So then, that so was the first time that we uh, stopped trying to combine the things that the two of us were doing, and we're really making something together. Excellent. So, so talk to us about how that changed things. You bring in the laser cutters and you, you have this wonderful new tool at your hand at your disposal. Now, how does that change the, the time it takes to produce things, the cost of, of producing these products? How did that start to change your business? <laughs> I mean, everything. It did. <laughs> yeah. We, so the, that first year, um, we were making things at the museum. And we were making more and more things. We were prototyping some things. Um, about nine months after we started that, we, uh, made, we we had been planning this whole time. We did a Kickstarter campaign to launch, uh, to basically get our own laser cutter because we couldn't ask the museum to be in full on production for us, even though they quietly did for a little bit. Um, but that was not, you know, that wasn't really a thing that was sustainable. Um, so we, we launched a Kickstarter campaign um, in... September of 20, oh, Anna, 2014, I think. Um, I think that's right. I can't remember. 15, maybe. Um, it looks like she's frozen again. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and then basically once we could start producing product at our own pace, um, we, went, we did our first wholesale trade show um, just a few months after that. And that's when our, our wholesale clients basically went from 15 to 150 in our first year um, after that. So that was really, you know, that's what changed everything. It, it allowed um, it allowed us the time, I mean, because it is more efficient. But also, I, I think, I mean, part of what we like about the laser cutters is not only does it make our product faster, but we actually use it in a way that produces a product that we couldn't make without it. So it's not like okay. it's just doing a faster version of a handmade thing. It's actually producing a different product that you really couldn't get this type of precision with by hand. Well, and that's um, actually, the- that's a great lead into what I was going to ask about next, which is how you go about maintaining that balance between your, your artisanship, your artistry, and this sort of automation uh, that you're bringing in. How, how do you maintain that balance so that you have the best of both? Well, that's one of the things that we complement each other very well. I really like to figure out how to do things efficiently and quickly. And Sarah really likes to make sure that we're upholding like the meticulous level of detail and artisanship. So um, I feel like a lot of times what will happen is like, I'll find a way to do something faster. And then Sarah will be like, great, now we have time to do it better. But uh, it, it really does work very well in that way. Um, I think that one of the things, like Sarah just said, we kind of only use the modern tools to do things that only modern tools could do. And then we, we try to do the things that the traditional methods work better and give a better results, like hand edging all of the journals with beeswax. That just gives a more lustrous, lovely edge than just a simple laser cut edge. And so we try to take the best that both sides of the craft can offer and put them into every product. Terrific. Yeah, absolutely. 
By the way, I failed to mention in my introduction, but I want to invite those watching live to please use the comment uh, feature on the Facebook Live page to, to join in the discussion here, ask questions. We'll see those uh, pop up here as, as the comments come in, and we'll bring those into the discussion uh, as, as we're able to. So please please join in, in the discussion as, as uh, you're watching. I'm, I'm curious, um, like, can you give an example of one thing, one or two things that you can't do by hand, but you can do with the laser. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, so if you look at, if you can look at one of our products, and again, I'll hold it up for those of you that can see it on video. Um, this type of handwork and precision, which again, this is a, a, the original map of this Chicago map is from 1894. It's a Rand McNally. Um, and this kind of detail is a thing that there's just no, I mean, Yes, they were originally hand drawn, but this one was originally hand drawn at six feet tall. And so to scale it down to <laughs> yeah. there's there's no way to get that kind of precision and accuracy um, with a hand tool. Or if you could, there's no way that you could produce more than, you know, one of them in who knows how long. Um, and so so the fact that it becomes a product um, that really, you know, we can produce multiple of in a day. Um, at, a, at a cost that somebody could actually afford, you know what I mean, if they weren't having to pay for hours and hours and hours of work, which again is, is one of those compromises that Ann and I have had to make. You know, we want to produce something that people can buy, um, but it's got to be a really beautiful thing or something that we really stand behind. And so having the, you know, producing something by hand in order to make it actually profitable, you often have to charge much more than people can afford, um, which yeah. is a tricky place to be in as an artist, right? It's a, it's a really hard thing. Mm -hmm. And so um, the, another way that Anna and I have kind of balanced that is that we've personally started what we call our heritage series, um, which is more of a pet project for the two of us, um, where I get to do, I get to practice my hand carving and Anna gets to practice her spectacular pattern making. And we um, make these, these really, really high-end products together in very limited quantities that we number, so we'll never do the patterns again. And the point of those kind of is mostly for practice for ourselves and for fun. And then we have to price them at what they are worth. And so if they sell, they sell and great. But if they don't, that's not really the point. Um, the point is more as a personal project. And so the laser cutter really um, makes a product more accessible to our customer in a way, because it makes it a more affordable piece. Right. And you can, you can replicate it more quickly. I was looking at exactly. those heritage products on your site. They're just gorgeous, really beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. We yes. need to do more of them. Yes, you do. <laughs> um, how did you get the idea for the map themed journals? Was that something that just kind of popped up in your head, or, or you know, did you get a book wrapped in a map one time as paper, or how how did that happen? I don't know. I mean, I think it just popped into our head, but I. <laughs> there goes the connection again. Oh, sorry, folks. You'll be right back. Maybe you could uh, address that, Sarah. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, 
the there it actually did happen one of the great things about our company oh anna anna's back Go for it. <laughs> um, what I was going to say is I think that it the maps make a lot of sense because both of us uh, love traveling and we love the places that we come from. So having a sense of place is really important. But also yeah. as people who have studied props and craftsmanship, something about those those older maps, the hand-drawn nature of them, the like beautiful artistry, it just, I think both of us connect to them. Um, and I think there's also the, you know, the idea of like the map being a physical thing, not just the app mm -hmm. that you pull up on on your phone to look for something. So I don't know that either one of us necessarily would have said before that we had a particular affinity for maps, but in, in some ways, I think it was a pretty natural choice. I think yeah. that's absolutely true. And I think in addition to that, I mean, one of the things I love about our company is that we honestly can't remember who came up with the idea of trying the Milwaukee mm -hmm. map for the first time, which is kind of fantastic. Um, and also, um, it wasn't actually our first intention to focus on maps. It was something that we loved, we thought was cool, um, but we had several other designs that we that we produced at the same time, but it was something about the maps that our customers kept coming back to. When we were at fairs, they kept going back to those. They would pick them up, they would show us where they grew up, or they would show us where they had their first date with their partner, or it was just this beautiful thing that started happening where like literally people would just start talking to us about these really personal things. And, and I think that's something that we knew we had that connection to personally, but we you that's a, a rare thing to be able to plan in a company of how do you personally connect with somebody through a product. And it turns out people have really strong emotional connections to places. And so like whether it's a home or whether it's a, a vacation or something like that, it's people are really anxious to talk about it. And so that was just, a, it, once we started paying attention to that, it was a very natural step to just focusing on that because clearly people wanted to, people wanted to connect that way. I think it's really awesome. Like, um, you know, we are so attached to things like you can, you can pick up a shampoo bottle, um, and smell something and be transported back to fourth grade where you, you know, got the haircut of your dreams or, you know, you, you see a map, you even, you know, just see the name of a city and you're back with your children walking on the beach somewhere or or something like that. And and with it being a journal cover, um, I think that really is a, a really cool combination. Um, you know, I want to get one. I have to save up my paychecks. Um, but uh, <laughs> I want to get one because I'm about to start traveling and I don't know what my favorite destination is going to be yet, but I want to, you know, write a little little blurb about each place I go. Um, and there's something about handwriting something um, versus typing it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I there's agree. also something really satisfying for us to make something that's supposed to last. You know, when we worked in theater, it was really common that you'd, you'd work really hard on something and then it would only be on stage for five minutes before the director decided they didn't want it. Or even if it was in the play, a lot of times at the end of those shows, stuff just goes in the dumpster. And so for us to be able to um, spend time refining something to be just the way we wanted, knowing that someone was going to be able to use it for years and years and have it be, you know, a a personal cherished item that's very satisfying in, in a way that making ephemeral things uh isn't 
Right. Yeah, that's absolutely true. I think another big part of that is that it used to be, so all of our journals now come with, a, they're basically a cover, right? They come with a, a, mm -hmm. a refillable moleskin notebook in them. Um, it used to be that we would stitch, we would hand stitch paper into each one. So basically it was a oh, one-time wow. used journal. Um, and the comment we kept getting back from people was, I'm too afraid to write in it. I'm so, it's so pretty, I'm, okay. I'm afraid, I don't want to screw it up. And part of what I love about the, the fact that it's refillable now is that it doesn't matter. So, you know, now, now like, you know, I write shopping lists in it or take notes or rip pages out and it just doesn't matter because, you know, it's cheap to replace it and you don't lose the patina that you've made on that cover. And so I think there's something really valuable about that. And that's something we keep trying to push with people is like, we make the stuff to be used. It's not meant to be a sacred thing. Like it, what makes it sacred is that it's, you know, been part of somebody's life. And that means getting your hands on it and getting it dirty and, you know, scratching yeah. it up and all that. And you know, leather has that quality of the more you use it, the more patina you put into it, the more beautiful it gets. Like the oils from your hands yeah. actually make the leather more beautiful. Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> That's something else I was I was wondering about when I when I was looking at your products. I found myself wondering about the artwork that you're using for these for these maps. Is that map data uh, such that it's like in the public domain where you can avoid some of the costs associated with designing custom artwork and that sort of thing? Yeah. So there's a couple of different answers to that. Um, one of them is that anything that is uh, dated pre 1923 is in the public domain. So that is one smaller reason why we do tend to use older maps when we can. Um, although it's it's more an aesthetic choice than mm -hmm. the year, but that does help. Right. Um, but also because we alter the maps so greatly when we take the from the original to what we're actually etching um it's there, there's they're protected under a different type of copyright law so it's it's basically a derivative work um and not the original but we do kind of a fun little tidbit is we do include the year of the original map that we use in the maker mark in the back nice. of each one. Nice. Um, just because it started because we couldn't remember all of the years <laughs> like, we were like I, I love it it gives it a historical context that's nice yeah yeah Okay, so let's we got to talk tech a little bit here. So tell us about what laser cutters are you guys using? What kinds of, of machines are you using for your work these days? All right, I Sarah, you're gonna be on the spot if I if I cut out here, but uh, we currently have five. <laughs> the first laser that we got was a full spectrum pro, um, and uh, that one was it was a good starter for us. It was a good workhorse. Um, and then uh, my husband picked us up a little, just a, a unbranded import, little tabletop, 40 watt. Um, and that one was great for doing our smaller items. Our workhorse now is uh, our Epilogue Fusion 60 watt. It's got a, a 30 by 20 inch bed and a big and fast and precise and I love it. And their customer service is fantastic. Um, we also have two of the Dremel Digilab uh, 40 watts, nice tabletops. And those are my favorite because they have the camera on them. So when we need to line something up really nicely on a smaller project, that uh, built-in camera is fantastic. But that Epilogue Fusion is really our workhorse these days. Excellent. Nice yeah. machines. Yeah. Sounds like you've got a uh, quite a variety there. Um, <laughs> we do. <laughs> We've got a computer running, like you know, all the different software. That's that's a bit of a thing, but we figured yeah. it out. So, what are some of the struggles and challenges of running a small business, um, especially now that you guys are separated by miles? <laughs> that's been a new new development for us. That now, 
Um, the pandemic forced us to learn how to work remotely um, when possible, which um, allowed me to fulfill a big old dream to move to the West Coast, um, which, you know, is both thrilling and really sad to be away from my best friend and business partner. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's been obviously a challenging year for us, like it has been for absolutely everybody. Um, there were, you know, challenges in running a small business beforehand, and it's been, um, you know, a real trick this year. Uh, one thing that I, th I think... I think our, our theater background really did help prepare us for was that we have gotten very good at changing direction quickly when we needed to. Um, and, you know, we don't hold ideas precious. We, um, we do what needs to be done. And so we, yes, feel an emotional connection to the products that we make, but also we need to buy groceries and keep our employee employed. Mm -hmm. And um, so uh, one thing, and, and also we, we like to, um, help out when we can. We both have that nature. I don't know if it's being from the Midwest or if it's just, you know, how we were raised. But um, uh, so one thing that we did um, early on, and Anna, maybe you want to talk about this more, was that we did shift uh, in April and May into um, cutting laser, uh, face shields, plastic face shields, for pretty much that, those entire two months. Yeah, that was something that was really exciting is that um, we saw this amazing thing happening at the beginning of the pandemic when the hospitals and health organizations couldn't get the supplies they needed. And suddenly all across the country, all these little maker spaces and businesses just started making whatever they could. And there was this really great um, grassroots movement to make designs and get them out on the internet, you know, open source. Um, and so we, uh, the hardest part of that was actually finding materials. And I, I feel like our, props background uh, helped us out a little in that because after we'd exhausted all of the plastic suppliers we started thinking of like well who else buys plastic so i started calling uh costume cosplay companies and we found one that just happened to have a big pile of plastic sitting in their backs <laughs> so we had them ship that to us and we found some great open source designs and we just we just started making them uh our customers were really helpful because essentially we did a sponsor a mask program so they would send us the money for the labor and materials we obviously sold them at cost and then we would donate them to an organization that needed them but it was a really great way yeah, i think we lost her again <laughs> and over to you, Sarah. <laughs> it was an incredibly satisfying project because I think in a time when nobody knew exactly what to do and suddenly realizing, oh, go ahead, Anna, just that we had the, we had the materials to do it or we had the means to do it. Mm -hmm. And it was also a, a good way for us to keep busy and feel like we were actually contributing something really important that we needed. And so I was really proud of us for being able to be that and really proud of the other makers who made those designs available. Like, I, I feel like a lot of makers really pitched in at a time that we really needed it. And Absolutely. It made me proud to Couldn't be a agree maker. More. Couldn't agree more. That was, you know, one of the reasons I first started uh, 3D Universe goes back to, you know, falling in love with this technology because I see it as something that empowers people um, and, and allows them to pursue, you know, ideas and start businesses and do things that they might not have been able to do otherwise. And I think that was why I was excited about today, because I think you guys and the business you've built is a phenomenal success story uh, and a perfect illustration of that. Uh, in the midst of, you know, the most difficult time, in the midst of this pandemic, you guys have built something really special um, with, you know, with the aid of this technology, but of course with, with your, you know, skills and creativity, uh, you know, married with that. Um, 
So, you know, first of all, kudos on what you've built. It's really exciting to see people that have been successful in, in doing this. Um, you mentioned this earlier. You guys have over 200 partners. I was looking at this on your website, on your stockists in the map, and it blew me away. I mean, you guys have a lot of people selling your products. As a small business owner, I, that just blew me away. How did you guys go about getting that many partners and getting your products into so many places? That's, that in and of itself is quite a success. Thank you. Yeah, that's something that we um, we we have a, a phrase that we say to each other a lot, which is start before you're ready. And um, I feel like the first trade show that we did was definitely an exercise in that. So um, we were a part of a craft fair in Chicago called the Renegade Craft Fair for several years. And somebody approached us at that show um, from a, a, one of the largest uh, trade shows in, in the world called New York Now, um, which takes place in Manhattan twice a year when there's not a pandemic. Um, and she contacted us and said, we'd like you to apply. And it's a wholesale trade show. So basically, you go and you set up a booth with just your samples and then buyers from all over the world, I think 80,000 buyers from around the world, um, come and see your product and then place orders for, from you that you fulfill over the course of a few months. Um, and we thought like, there's no way we're ready for this. You know what I mean? We had, we had our Milwaukee line, we had a Chicago line and that was it. We had no catalog, nothing like that. Um, and then we, we did one of our, our annual meetings together and we thought, well, what do we have to lose? Like, we didn't think we were going to, like we had our eyes on something like that, but we didn't think we were going to apply for another couple of years and it was like, we can we can fake our way through a catalog. We can pretend, you know, we can make a few more lines by then, right? Sure, no problem. We probably won't get in, but it can't hurt to see to learn the process of the application. Um, so we faked our way through the application, and we were accepted to our shock, um, which was terrifying because they're these shows are incredibly expensive um, just to just to have a booth at, and then you know, not to mention the travel. Um, associated with all of it. And we had to show more than just a Milwaukee and a Chicago line if we were showing to an international trade show. So um, basically in the next three months after that, we produced another nine lines, um, which was a madhouse and designed a, a booth, a trade show booth, um, which was something we hadn't done before um, and created a catalog. Um, and made line sheets, which were the, you know, it was basically like, it was just a crash course in, in what wholesaling um, business is. And that first show went remarkably well. Um, again, every conversation was terrifying because people kept throwing terms at us that we had no idea what they meant. Um, and we either faked our way through it or we're just very honest and said, we're new to this. What, can you explain what you're asking, <laughs> please? Um, <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, we stumbled our way through it and it was, it was really successful. So, um, that was kind of our first foray into that. Um, so we've done trade shows between two and six times a year um, at this point now for the last five years in New York and Las Vegas. Um, and then this kind of bizarro one that happens every once in a while in Joshua Tree, California. Um, but, uh, you know, obviously everything's been put on hold. So a lot of those um, relationships, you know, it's, it's a matter of sometimes maintaining them um, there are some virtual trade shows happening right now, which uh, have been hit and miss. Um, but we're lucky that we had enough of kind of a, a, um, a customer base at this point that now we can kind of maintain and skate our way through this like super bizarre time until we can hopefully go to in-person trade shows again because they're super fun to actually see everybody in person like that. 
Yeah, yeah, I can see that. Yeah. I'm, I'm guessing yeah. with your uh, with these uh, map related products, they they must do really well in like uh, gift shops where you know there's a lot of mm -hmm. tourists and they they want to get something for that area. Is that has that have you seen that be uh, part of your business? Yeah. Yeah, that's absolutely, that's a huge part of our business. Um, we also do a lot of business um, with kind of corporate gifting type things. So people will let, people like to put their logo on our, on our products and we do a lot of that work um, as well, which has been really great. Um, but yeah, the gift shop scene is really big because even, you know, now that we offer so many different cities and we're always coming out with more, we have four more that should launch by the end of this month. Um, you know, people, even if they don't, if we don't carry their specific city, like if they're in a, you know, a tiny town that we don't have yet, um, you know, they like to carry Paris and New Orleans and Yosemite National Park. And, you know, you can, because again, people have those connections with those places, no matter where they live. Um, so yeah, yeah, definitely that's a huge part of our business are kind of those local gift shops um, and those touristy shops, but that's not, that's not all it is, but that is a big part sure. of it. Sure. We've also yeah. both gotten better at just if we're on a trip, just like taking a sample with us and walking into the shop and being mm -hmm. like, we make these things. Here's our catalog and a sample. Call us when you want to carry it. Like we both used to be very shy about that, but now we both do that on vacation all the time. Yeah, that's, that's great. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> um, what was the learning curve like for you guys going from traditional to laser cutter? Um, I just finally got a laser cutter. I've got the little Flux Bimo, and, um, and my roommate um, has been a traditional leather worker, and you know he hand draws everything. Um, and trying to go from um, traditional to lasering, um, watching his face when the laser cutter first etched something that would have taken him hours by hand. Um, he's like six foot four or something and a, a pretty big guy. And he was like, like a little kid <laughs> jumping around the garage. He's like, it's burned stuff. And, um, you know, it's, it, and it was so cool because he is not a tech person. He wasn't, he doesn't even like really do email or anything like that. So I'm curious um, how much experience you've had with with technology versus the traditional side and what the learning curve was like for that. Well, so um, I think that both of us had had some basic uh, understanding of uh, Photoshop and digital editing software. So we had a little bit of a base in that. And I will say that the the hardest thing at first was to get learn to get the settings right on the leather. Like that just took a lot of trial and error. And um, at that time, not a lot of other people that we knew of were lasering on leather. And so we pretty much just trial and error dialed it in. The thing that I think was really funny for both of us is remembering the kind of tool that we had on hand. We wanted to add a pencil loop to our journals. And we kept, like, we used to, uh, we figured out the etching long before we figured out how to cut out of leather because it would just burn through the leather and it was ashy yeah. and awful. So we would etch and then we would cut all of these edges out by hand with scissors and knives. Mm -hmm. And so we were trying to get this, like, this pencil loop and we kept making these little tabs that looked so sloppy and I like we were both so frustrated with it and I was like I just feel like we need to cut it in a more precise way like it just needs to be so more wait a second 
We have a machine that literally does that. That's right. <laughs> so this honestly, is, just this is like maybe two years after we got our first laser cutter. Like, oh, yeah. wow. <laughs> that was not a quick transition for us. And I think I like still remember the look in both of us in our eyes as we looked at each other and we're like, oh my God. <laughs> so kind of like, you know, trying to remind ourselves that we had these new tools. Uh, you know, e and even when we had gotten used to using the tool in one particular way, that there were other ways that they could be used. So that was a bit of a, 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 something we had to, to shift our mind. So I, our perspective shifted. So I certainly understand what your, uh, what your roommate is going through with that. It's just yeah. like, oh, I never thought of it like this. Yeah. I mean, one of the other things that took us so long um, is that uh, I think you guys mentioned that laser etching on leather is not an easy thing. And part of it is just that mm -hmm. there are so many variations in leather itself. And there's a, there are leathers that are dangerous to etch. There are laser, laser, or leathers that are safer to etch. Um, but one thing that took us a very, very long time is that the main tannery that we work with is a, a tannery in Milwaukee, about four miles from where our studio is. And they um, they have huge minimum orders, so they don't usually sell direct to the public, but they would sell us seconds or overstock that they had, just like a hide at a time. And basically, over the course of several years, we would collect samples and figure out which leathers etched better than others. And then after three years of working with the same sales guy, we took him all of our favorite leathers and we said, this is the stuff that works. What is this about this that works? And he was able to tell us like, oh, that's what we call crust leather. It doesn't have its top coat on it. It was never like it's, and so that was, and now that we're, now that we're as large as we are, we actually have that tannery custom tents are very leather um, that's based on not only the color and aesthetic we wanted, but very much based on its qualities for the laser etching. Um, so, and then we, we do a, a series of top coats on it to give it that same um, durability that it would need. But it is custom tanned for us to accept the laser etching more successfully. Okay. Um, and so that, that took yeah. years, years of practice and work and trial and error. Well, okay. So now you're getting into something that I want to dig a little bit more into because this is something I really look forward to learning more about. You know, both Jen and I have been testing and, and working with the laser cutters. And, and we just, we love what you can do with them. Just amazing tools. But leather is the hardest, for sure. So hard. And we've, we've tried a number of different leathers. And as you mentioned, some of them work very well. Others work very poorly. Um, with, without giving away all of your, you know, business secrets, what, can, what tips can you give us about what to look for? You already shared some, something that I find really important, which is specifically sourcing leather that doesn't have that top coat. What did you call that? Crust leather? It's crust leather, which actually most places won't list if it's crust or not. So that okay. could be a hard thing to find out. Okay. Um, successfully, uh, uh, a vegetable tan leather is the way to go. Vegetable tan leather. And then is it, is, it, is it really just yeah. trial and error on the settings? Do you have any tips for getting the right results? Um, we tend to have good luck with high speed, low power. Okay. Uh, but I would say that if, if you are etching any kind of leather, Sarah's right, veg tan is, is the safest bet. If you're etching or cutting any type of leather and it starts to look like it's melting, that mm -hmm. means it has some paint or dye or acrylic or some other chemical that it's imbued with. And a lot of upholstery leathers and, and things like that do. So um, if you start to notice any kind of melting, that's not the leather you want to be etching. Excellent. 
And in terms of what about cutting? Do you tend to, is there any kind of general guidance? Like do you do multi-pass cutting or any anything like that that would be helpful? Yeah, multiple passes. And that I think is, um, it, that one's a lot of trial and error for the thickness you're using. Um, that one we tend to do a uh, high power, slow cut. Um, and we tend to do several passes. And the trick is, you know, the, the thicker the leather is, the more out of focus it's going to be as you go right. down further. Um, usually we can cut through our leather in three passes. And then um, it's just a matter of dialing that in so you're not just burning the edges off. Right, exactly. Okay. Right. Obviously you can get that, that ash a lot. And then also I think part of it is that, you know, over the course of a hide, you'll get really fibrous parts or really clean parts. And that's like, there are still parts that we will trim with scissors once we're done laser cutting yeah. it out because it won't cut perfectly through. And yep. some of them you know, yeah. drop perfectly and are, are beautiful. Yeah. 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 I, I tried um, testing different leathers as one of my first tasks as a new laser cutter owner. And, um, I was, there were a couple that turned out well and the rest I pretty much destroyed and it looked kind of like when you leave, you know, your sandwich on the dashboard and it curls up at the end and it gets all gross. Um, I, yeah, I, I really want to learn how to do it properly. And I made the mistake of just going for it with starting the design instead of, you know, making a little circle. You know, like not wasting all of the rest of the leather. So um, doing testing first is the key, I think. Um, the full spectrum has a lovely, uh, it's called a materials test, and it basically cuts a little two by two grid of squares at different settings. And then you can see exactly at speed, you know, you can look at it X and Y axis of speed and power. And that's very helpful. Yeah. Um, I will also say this to you guys probably already know this, but to novice uh, laser cutters, um, you cannot cut vinyl on a laser cutter. You will destroy your machine and you will poison yourself. So if you are using fake leather, which I do not recommend, but be very careful about what you're using. Most fake leathers have vinyl in them and you should not be laser cutting them. That's a good point. Bring we, once had a laser, we once had a laser cutter salesman use try to sell us on a laser cutter using vinyl. And we gave him such a talking to. It was not <laughs> good. Not good. Say we did not buy it from him because he did not take the time. So yeah, be very careful. So uh, someone in our audience is actually asking how thick is the leather that you use? Does it vary from one item to another? Or can you tell us anything about that? Yeah, so we use um, generally about what's called a five, six ounce leather. Um, so it's, I would say it's close to an eighth of an inch thick. And again, there is some variation on that, but that's about standard for us. And we are we use two different types of leather in our standard products. Um, we use one leather that's a little bit softer and more supple from that Milwaukee tannery for our journals and the passport wallets and the clutches. And then we use a vegetable tan leather um, from a tannery out of Pennsylvania called Wicked and Craig. And that one is a vegetable tan leather. And we use that for our flasks and our travel mugs, mostly because um, vegetable tan leather tends to be slightly more durable. And so since those are products that come in more in contact with liquid or are handled much more often, um, the vegetable tan leather just kind of stands up to the job a little bit better. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, do you guys have any thoughts on um, laser cutting tech in schools and how teachers might 
be able to use them even during distance learning, um, how, how they can encourage kids to design for a laser cutter and, and kind of work that way. Well, I think that the fact that designing can be done remotely and then the printing can be done in-house is is a great asset. I mean, that's essentially some of the things that Sarah and I are doing right now. We both do design work. And so Sarah will work on designs and then send them to me. I'll etch them and then I'll send her photos and then we can look at it that way. So, you know, the, the place where we are with being able to do technology distance wise, I think is great. Um, so I think that if the teachers, you know, if they can get their hands on materials and if they can be in the room, uh, it's, it's a great idea to, you know, have the kids like have all the kids design an ear saver and, you know, cut one each out of plastic and then people can try them on with their masks, you know, things like that. Um, it, it really is a benefit that the design can happen completely remotely from the machine. Well, I think in addition to that, you know, I think now that kids are growing up with so much technology in general, I think there's a really big benefit to honestly just putting the tools and materials in front of kids and see what they come up with. Because in the same way that like, you know, we had that flash idea for the Milwaukee Map Journal in one night. I feel like just putting the technology in front of the kids who aren't scared of it or don't have any preconceived notions of what it can do or what it can't do, I think I think they're going to be way more innovative than even an adult saying, "Here's what this machine can do." You know what I mean? And like, yes, I think it's going to get its parameters, but I think there's something I don't know. I think that there's a lot more creativity to be had out there than what the machines are traditionally made for. No, I think you're right. That's very well said, Sarah. I think you're absolutely right. Um, as women-owned small business, as, sorry, as women-owned small business owners, any advice to other women out there who want to start um, a business, um, maybe get a laser cutter, um, how, like, did you start with a website or did you start on Etsy or um, just selling to friends and family or, or anything like that? How do you, uh, we've got a lot of women who have lost their careers now because of the pandemic um, and um, had to give up, you know, the career they love. Now they're at home with the kids trying to do school, but, you know, there's downtime sometimes where they might be able to do some of the creative craft work that they always waited to do until the kids were in bed. Um, maybe taking some of those ideas, um, using a laser cutter um, or even 3D printers to make um, a business for themselves to supply their family with income, um, but also to, to just see what they can do now that they have, have been kind of forced into that situation where they have to figure out a way to make a living. Yeah, I think that um, if if I know that the pandemic would make this a little harder, but there are so many great maker spaces and libraries that offer these machines for you to be able to use without making the initial investment, which is which can be steep. But also these these uh, lasers are coming particularly are coming way down in cost. So um, I would say, you know, if you have ideas, try and hook up with other makers in in your area, try and find a maker space and try to find a community generally. I mean, we were so lucky that, you know, somebody would call us and say, oh, send us your line sheet. And Sarah would call her friend who owns a, a quilting company and be like, what's a line sheet? <laughs> um, so, you know, exactly just finding happens. other people. And 
<laughs> Over to you, Sarah. <laughs> She's absolutely right. Like, I think we've been really lucky in Milwaukee. Like, Milwaukee has an incredible maker community, and it's a, it's a surprisingly supportive community. I think there are a lot of communities um, out there that there's a lot of competition between makers, and Milwaukee is not one of those. So we got really used to relying on those and asking questions and being part of groups of people that would troubleshoot or would you know talk about how they were building their business or growing their business. Um, and a lot of those happen to be women owned, which I think is kind of an interesting thing. Um, Anna, do you wanna go back to what you were saying? Oh, I would just say like, don't be scared of asking questions, find people and like, yes, you'll, you'll get a couple of people who don't wanna give their secrets and don't ask people, you know, like tell me how to make this one thing. But right. yeah, find forums, find other people who do something similar. Um, we have found a lot of support from other small businesses. Right, yeah, and I found great. that, I found that, um, you know, when, when I've had ideas that before I got a laser cutter, um, now that I have a laser cutter, I've got friends who are messaging me on Facebook. Do you have a laser cutter? I have an idea for a thing. If I sent you a file, could you make me a prototype? And yes. I'm like, yeah, sure. And they're like, what do you do charge for that? I'm like, man, it's like 10 cents for materials. I'll do it. You see if it works. Um, if you like it, you know, we'll make you a couple more and put them on your Etsy. You make some money and then you save up for your own laser cutter. And I think it's really important that, um, if you have an idea for a business you can't, and you can't afford the laser cutter right now, there are so many people on Etsy, small business owners, other women, um, who are happy to do a run of 10 for you so that you can get the part back, make it into a necklace or whatever you want, and then sell it on Etsy, save that money and keep going. Um, you know, you just build that into your cost. Um, and I think um, if we all, just support each other, you know, you support this small business by, while building your own. I think that's a really um, collaborative way to help during a pandemic. Absolutely. Yeah. And 100%. I think something that Sarah touched on earlier is start before you're ready. If you wait until you feel comfortable doing it, you will not do it. So just jump in. When we first got our laser, basically we just like, we got the right kind of fire extinguisher and we would just like stand next to the laser and like put something on the laser and be like, okay, let's try it. Nothing caught on fire. Okay. Yeah. I, yeah. I think that's a big yeah. part of it. I, also, I mean, we definitely started on, uh, we were on Etsy for a while, which I think mm -hmm. is a great, great starting place for a lot of people. And we have, um, some incredibly successful wholesale uh, peers who have their own small businesses that have decided to stay on Etsy and have had great success with it. Um, mm -hmm. There are some downsides to it, so you have to go into it with your eyes open and remember that Etsy is in the business of also making money for itself. Yeah. So um, there can be some downsides to it, but it's a spectacular starting place for a lot of small businesses. I think also as uh, speaking in in regards to the question of being a women-owned business, um, I think often um, there is a hesitation to ask questions because it comes off as not being knowledgeable enough. Um, right. And that is something that we have really um, tried to balance as we become more and more involved in, the, in a professional world, in a business world. Um, we have encountered some I mean, comically terrible um, people in our in our business um, dealings who didn't take us seriously, who didn't, um, you know, who we were at trade shows and they assumed that we were 
um, hired help to sell the product and not the actual owners. And right. ask us five times in a row, but who actually makes these things? And we would keep saying, it's us. It's just the two of us. We're the only people. And they would be like, no, but who actually makes it? I mean, so we've had those conversations over and over again. Um, and, and that I think is really a matter of, um, finding a, a sustainable balance between, um, kind of having that hard shell and, and being confident and being, but being so confident that you can ask the question, I think is part of it. Yeah. And, um, and that's, I think, I don't think that's, maybe that's a, a more typically a, a challenge for women, but I don't think it's only a challenge for women. I think that's a challenge for everybody. Um, right. and so, um, you know, I think I think that's I think relying on, on a community that you can find is is the biggest part of it. We have yeah. always had more luck being more honest about our limitations or our questions. <laughs> like it's always brought us more good than bad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. That's good advice. So we have a question for you from the audience. Uh, let me pull this up on screen here. So Bill asks, "How often you clean the lenses on your lasers? Is it as needed or based on runtime?" Anna, you want oh, to take that's that? That's a great question for Anna, and she. Oh, we just froze in again. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> so we'll answer that um, question in just a moment. Start, we can start to tell when our lasers, when this, when the lenses need to be cleaned. Um, she's going to be able to give you. There, she's back. I'm back. <laughs> uh, it's it's both. Um, we we have a regular cleaning. I would say that we um, make sure that we're cleaning them uh, once a week on the epilogue, uh, but anytime that we notice that the focus is a little weird, uh, something that tends to happen when the lens gets dirty is there's a little bit of extra um, smoke out. And so anytime we're noticing that things aren't aren't doing well, then we refocus, clean the lenses. Good deal. All right. Uh, well, we don't have any other questions from the audience at the moment, so I think this is probably a good point to uh, wrap up. Now, I know uh, that uh, probably the best place to go to see your work would be your website, tactilecraftworks.com. So just put that into the, the comments there for our viewers. Is there anywhere else they should go if they want to learn more about your work or follow you guys? Any other sites they should keep an eye on? Absolutely. Um, we're most active on Instagram and Facebook, especially Instagram, um, just because they're such visual platforms. And so we like to you know show off what we're working on. Um, and that is our handle is just at tactilecraftworks. Excellent. Well, I want to thank Sarah and Anna for joining us. This has been a wonderful and educational discussion, as I knew it would be. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having us. It's been a real pleasure. Yeah, and Jen, thanks as always for co-hosting. See you all next time. I hope you'll join for our next episode, and uh, thanks for watching today. Bye, everyone. Goodbye.